Okay, good morning, everybody. It's nice to be back, start a new year. We're going into our seventh year of this uh, study, into our seventh year. Seven is a number of completion in the scriptures. So maybe we'll complete this book this year. I don't see why we can't. Uh, that would be our goal. So let's, let's see what, what happens. Let's go back to chapter 19 when I was with you. Back on December 2nd, we had, I believe we made it through verse 4. Okay, and what we have here in the first seven verses of chapter 19 is the hallelujah chorus of heaven. Part of where Handel's Messiah, the lyrics to that, part of his Messiah, the hallelujah chorus, came from this chapter. And it also comes a little bit from a place a little bit later. But we talked about the hallelujah chorus. We looked at the first stanza there in the first two verses, the second stanza in verse 3, and last time we ended with what I would call a refrain, a refrain. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. I believe the last thing we talked about is what's summed up here in this refrain, those two words, Amen, and hallelujah. Both come from Hebrew words. Amen is a Hebrew word that means thus may it be, so be it. Hallelujah comes from hallelujah in the Old Testament. Hallelujah is a Greek transliteration, but hallelujah means praise ye the Lord. And when we think about it, when we see God's judgment, maybe even when we see trial and tribulation, the best reaction that a righteous man can have is amen. Thus may it be. Reaction is instant. Our best response would be hallelujah, praise the Lord. In everything give thanks, the Bible says. So that's a challenge to us. Jesus said, let your yea be yea and your nay, nay. And uh, make amen and hallelujah a part of your vocabulary, just like the saints here in heaven. The 24 elders are pictured there in chapters 4 and 5. And I talked many, many, many Sundays ago about those being representatives of the church because they sing, uh, Thou hast redeemed us out of every tribe, kindred, and nation. That means the church is there in heaven in the throne room, raptured out. And as I got to thinking a little more about that, and I wonder if maybe what you have here is not just, a representative, not just representatives of those from the church, but the Old Testament saints as well. You see... The only difference between salvation prior to the cross and after the cross was a matter of perspective. The Old Testament saint looked forward to redemption in a Messiah who would shed his blood for the sins of the people. In a sense, they were saved on credit. The New Testament saint looks backward in faith, believing that so was done, saved on debit. And so... Perhaps these 24 elders represent the church and the Old Testament saints. When we go a little bit further, we'll see in the New Jerusalem that the 12 foundations of the city are inscribed with the 12 tribes of Israel, the Old Testament saints. The 12, uh, I don't know, am I doing something funny up here? No, we were just thinking about that Shiloh and Myra. Okay, okay, all right. right. Just making sure. People are... Sniggling out there. I wonder if they're laughing at me if I look stupid or something. No, we so. just picked up that line. 
Okay. The 12 gates of the city, it said, are named after the 12 apostles of the Lamb, representatives of the church. So either way, they're representative and they're praising God for having redeemed us out of every tribe, kindred, and nation. And here they say with resolve, amen and hallelujah. But I want to move into verse 5 and following today. Um, it says here, and a voice came out of the throne saying, praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. That's a line right out of the Handel's Hallelujah Chorus. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. So after a couple of brief stanzas and a refrain here, we have a crescendo. The crescendo in a musical score builds an intensity to the climax. Verse 5, this voice out of the throne is a crescendo calling all that fear God to praise our God, all His servants. All His servants and ye that fear Him. What that means is that a servant of God fears God. It's that simple. A servant of God fears God. This claptrap in a lot of churches today that we don't need to fear God. You know, Jesus is our buddy. Jesus is our homeboy. And he just tolerates whatever we do. Those are biblical, those are unbiblical lies. God's servants fear God. It's the wicked in Romans chapter 3 of which it is written, they have no fear of God before their eyes. All his servants, ye that fear him. This is a reference to the whole family of God, beyond just the New Testament church. All his servants. This includes the first fruits of the resurrection, the Old Testament saints, those before the law was given, those after the law was given. This includes the harvest, the church that is raptured out prior to the tribulation. It includes the gleanings or the tribulation saints that are martyred, the fruit of the Jewish witnesses and their preaching in the tribulation whose lives are lost because of their witness. We'll see them later as the guest in the marriage supper. This also includes the Jewish remnant, the 144,000 and the remnant that remains. And God preserves through the judgment just like Noah and his family were preserved through the flood. These are those that fear him. These are his servants. I mentioned Romans chapter 3 a minute ago. Let's go over to that chapter for a minute. Romans chapter 3 describes man as he is by nature. Man is not basically good. And those that boast about this, unfortunately, often discover the opposite to be true and they pay for it with their lives. There was a couple, I believe they were from the United States, not long ago who were bicycling across the world. And they would post these blog updates and all of this stuff. And they were boasting about going through these places 
that were supposed to be dangerous. And they were talking about how certain politics and certain attitudes in America breed fear and that there's men are not basically evil like we teach or what's taught. And men are basically good and we found that people are kind and they may do certain things that we don't understand, but they're just cultural differences and people are kind. Well, as they were biking, bicycling across one of the Central Asian republics, uh, which are not very safe places to be, a car pulled up and some Islamic uh, radicals got out of the car and slaughtered them, killed them. They paid for their foolishness with their lives. Men are not basically good. Romans 10 tells us, as it is, I mean, chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. That's the opposite of what the American church teaches today. The Bible is the opposite of what is preached behind many pulpits today. Let's just get that straight right off the bat. There is none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. Human nature is predictable. That's why if a person understands human nature and understands history, he can know the future. Human nature is predictable, and so is history. They are all gone out of their way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Now, Paul's not just making this up. He's quoting the book of Psalms here. This is old truth. Nothing new under the sun. None good, no, not one. Until you realize that, you can't be saved. Until you realize that, you can't even know and understand who the real Jesus is. Their throat is an open sepulcher, like an open grave. With their tongues they have used deceit, the poison of asp or poisonous snakes is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is man by nature. But those who have been born again, those who have been changed, I'm not talking about professing Christians, I'm talking about born again Christians, are quite different altogether. Born again is to be born of God. To be born of God is to have the Spirit of God born in you by grace through faith in Jesus Christ the Messiah. Those that have the Spirit of God born in them are quite opposite. They fear God. They heed the commandment of Jesus. Jesus said, don't fear those that can kill the body. I'll tell you who to fear. Fear Him who has power to cast both body and soul into hell. Friends, that's not the devil. That's God. Fear Him, I say. Peter tells the church, fear God. His servants fear Him. The world does not. Our nature is to hate God. That's our nature. To blame Him. Just like Adam did in the Garden of Eden. He didn't blame the woman. Matthew said it before. He said, the woman you gave me made me do it. That's blaming God. But God's servant fear, servants fear Him. There's no fear of God before the eyes of the wicked. There's no fear of God in this nation today. This is the world. Paul goes on to say in verse 19, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law. The law shows us our sinfulness. 
that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. You see, the law of God, His righteousness stops the mouth of every man because all the world is guilty. I don't care what your religion is. I don't care what your socioeconomic status is. You're guilty before God and you need a Savior. And the righteous understand that and they praise Him. They fear Him and they rejoice in His judgment as we see here in heaven. A crescendo, a voice out of the throne calling God's servants who fear Him to praise Him, both small and great. There's both small and great that comprise the servants of the Lord. There's rich and there's poor. There's white and there's black. There's Jew and there's Gentile. There's male and female. Small and great. Then we get to verse 6 and 7. This is what I call the climax of the whole score. A couple of stanzas, a refrain, a crescendo, and a climax. Or what in modern musical scores is called an outro. That's kind of a modern day thing that's in rock and roll music. But we have an intro. The outro is how the song goes out. The climax, and that's what we hear. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude. Out of the throne, God's servants are called to praise Him. And then John hears a great multitude. And as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God, omnipotent, reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice. And give honor to Him. So this whole multitude, all His servants, let us be glad and rejoice because the marriage of the Lamb has come and His wife has made herself ready. This reminds me of a scene we have back in Revelation chapter 5 where the same, a lot of the same people are involved. Long time ago I talked about Revelation 4 verse 11, what I believe is one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. God is the Creator, and He created what He created, and He did what He did for His pleasure. That ought to be enough for us. That ought to be enough for any man. It says in Ecclesiastes, He does whatever He pleases. That's the most important truth, one of the most important truths in Scripture. There is a God, there's a Creator who made you, and He does whatsoever He pleases, and you're going to give an account to Him. Then we get into chapter 5, which I talked about being one of the most important chapters in the Bible. Because we see that there's only one worthy to open the title deed of the earth. There's only one worthy to claim ownership. And it's not a church, it's not a pope. It's not a nation or a political entity. It's the lamb who was slain, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He was worthy to open the scroll. And in this context, we had a similar voice of praise. Verse 11, And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beast and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth 
and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, amen. And the four and 20 elders fell down and worshiped him that liveth forever and ever. Amen. Back in chapter 19, a similar climax of praise. God is always worthy to receive praise. That praise and that adoration in chapter 5 was before the seals were opened. Before judgment and death and sickness and plague was poured upon the earth. And then the adoration that follows all these things is consistent. After God pours out his wrath that makes so many angry in this life today, the saints still praise him. The adoration is consistent both before the judgment and after the judgment. Is it that way with us in our life? Is our praise of God consistent before we have trial and tribulation and after? While the country is at peace and successful and after it falls apart. That's the model set for us of the saints there in heaven. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. That's one of my favorite lines uh, in the hallelujah chorus. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Okay, I thought maybe. I never understood what they were saying as a child. Like what? It was all jumbled and... And, uh, but it's right out of the scriptures, right out of the scriptures for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. This has always been true. This has always been real. And now the righteous gathered there in heaven, see openly what has always been behind the scenes. It's always been there. It's never changed. Just because the vials have been poured out doesn't mean God suddenly omnipotent reigneth. He's always reigned omnipotently. He's always been behind the scenes. He raises nations. He brings them down. He raises up kingdoms, uses them for his purposes, and then he throws them down. He is in control. He made this very clear to Job. So many things we think we know. God showed Job to be completely wrong. There's five miles. You could line up scientific books housed in the Louvre Museum in France and they'd go five miles long of scientific books, scientific conclusions that have been shown to be wrong with the passing of time. But God has always reigned behind the scenes. In Ecclesiastes 8, verse 3, I kind of referenced this a minute ago. It says this, well, I'll, I'll read verse 2. I counsel thee to keep the king's commandment and that, and that in regard to the oath of God. Be not hasty to go out of his sight, that is God's sight. Stand not in an evil thing, for he doeth whatsoever pleaseth him. Don't be hasty with God or think you can get out of his sight because he does what pleases him. And then I find it interesting the next... The next uh, uh, verse here says, where the word of a king is, there is power. 
In regard to the oath of God, don't be hasty to go out of his sight. Don't stand in an evil thing because he does whatsoever pleases him. And where the word of a king is, there's power. Will it please God to give us a Bible in the English language by the word of a king 400 years ago? And to preserve that scripture where the word of a king is, there's power. And that's what it pleased God to do. The king ain't on it. king ain't in it. I love this King James Bible because where the word of a king is, there's power. And it pleased God to give us a Bible in the international language of the end times that's been translated into innumerable tongues, that's been preserved, that we can trust. There's enough revelation, there's enough truth in any Bible translation to point man to Christ, to present salvation and to draw him But why would I carry a rusty old scabbard into battle when I can have a razor-sharp, double-edged broadsword that I can understand? Praise God for the King James Bible. I don't want to get off on another topic, but praise God. In Daniel chapter 4 and in chapter 5, it was made very clear to two of the most powerful political monarchs ruling over the world at that time. When the world, the civilized world, was under the dominion of Babylon, it was made very clear to Nebuchadnezzar, a powerful king who had sacked Jerusalem and had the temple burned down, who had conquered nations, that there's a God who rules in the kingdoms of men, and he puts in power who he wants to be in power for his purposes, and then he can bring down the mighty and completely abase them. Nebuchadnezzar was taught that lesson the hard way. Daniel chapter 4, one of Nebuchadnezzar's successors down the road. 25, 30 years later, it's hard to pinpoint the exact timeline because we don't know exactly when this uh, thing happened with Nebuchadnezzar in his long reign. But his, one of his successors down the line, Belshazzar learned that the hard way. The hand came and wrote on the wall in that drunken party. And it was reminded Belshazzar that there was a prophet in in the days of one of your fathers that spoke and understood things. And and, and one of your fathers learned that there's a God who rules in the kingdoms of men. And then Daniel came on the scene and he reminded the king. And then it was made clear that his time was up. And the Persians snuck in through the city having rerouted the Euphrates River and overthrow the city in the night. But there is a God who rules in the kingdoms of men and he puts in power whosoever he pleases. That's why it's foolish when people... You know, I read an article this past week that made me very sad about my alma mater. It was an interview that Jerry Falwell Jr., who's the chancellor at Liberty University, uh, sat down with the Washington Post. I don't know why any Christian would ever sit down with a filthy rag like that. A rag that has a long history of twisting people's words out of context, of making up lies, and of hating the Bible and Christians. The Washington Post ought to be burned to the ground, just like Union troops burned Southern newspapers to the ground. That's my opinion, one man's opinion. But he sat down and gave him an interview and went on and on about how Jesus never told Caesar how to rule Rome. And that the Bible is not meant for public policy. And I'm like, why would you say something so stupid as that? Have you never read Daniel? 
Have you never read where God told political leaders, the most powerful in the world today, exactly how they should rule? Have you never read where David said that he that ruleth men must rule in the fear of God? Did you forget to read where Jesus told Pilate, you have no power over me unless it's given you from above? What about Pilate's wife who was told exactly what he should do in a dream regarding Jesus and Pilate didn't listen to it? Foolishness. The Bible says exactly how how men ought to rule. And we stopped listening to that in our country and now Christians make excuses against it to justify what the political leaders they support do and don't do. It's shameful. Shameful that a Christian leader over at one of the, world, uh, the, the country's largest Christian universities, supposedly training champions for Christ, would, 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 would drivel on about such unbiblical garbage in public. Shame on him. The Bible in Deuteronomy 4 gives us public policy for the nation of Israel And then the rest of the Old Testament shows what happens to a nation when they don't follow that public policy. God told Israel, I'm giving you this law so that in the sight of the nations, they will look and see what a great law it is and follow its example. The law never saved a man from his sin, but it sure is good public policy. Foolishness. But the Lord God omnipotent reigneth And he does care about public policy and he makes it one way or another. He's always governed. He puts up kings and he puts them down. He put Trump in power for his purposes and at some point he'll bring him down. He rose up the United States for his purposes. During the Philadelphia church period, this nation was used to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. And like Israel today, we've turned our back. It's the Laodicean age and this nation will be thrown down. It was raised up for a purpose that it's fulfilled and it'll be thrown down. There's a big difference between a Republican voter and a born-again Christian. Even though born-again Christians may vote Republican. There's a big difference between a Republican voter and a born-again Christian. There's a big difference between Trump and his advisors and born-again Christians. Because Republican voters and our president... They don't know the future of this country. The born-again Christian knows what's going to happen to this country in the next 50 years. He knows. He knows. The spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. He knows exactly what's going to happen to this country in the end. The Republican voter doesn't. He hopes for a utopia through politicians. That's a grave difference, my friends. It's a big difference. And we ought to remember that difference when we go to the voting booth. Yeah, we may vote for Republicans. We may be glad they win political races. But please remember, there's, there's a vast sea of difference between a Christian and a Democrat, but there's a big difference between a, a born-again Christian and a Republican voter too. Because we know the future of this country. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. What does it mean to be omnipotent? It means that God is all-powerful. All-powerful. In other words, the God that's being praised here, the God of the Bible is not the God of Mormonism. The God we worship is omnipotent. Mormon God is not omnipotent. He's not. On April 7th, 1844, Joseph Smith 
delivered or preached a funeral that was attended by 20,000 Mormons. They gathered for a funeral and he preached a, a sermon. The sermon wasn't written down or recorded, but those that were there spoke about it. It's often called the King Follett Discourse. And a man who later became the LDS president after Brigham Young summarized this sermon of Joseph Smith in a, in a little couplet. As man now is, God once was. As God now is, man may be. That's Mormonism. That's not omnipotence. If God used to be what we are now and we can be what God is now, then that's not an omnipotent God. The God of the Bible is not Mormon God. It's not Mormon God. Our God is omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, which means all-knowing. He knows all things. If He's omnipotent, by default, He's omniscient. He knows all things. That means the God of the Bible is not Muslim God. It's not Allah of the Quran. Because Allah of the Quran is not omniscient. Based on his own testimony, he's not omniscient. We see in the Quran that Allah tests individuals so he can learn more about them. God doesn't have to test people to learn more about him. It says even Jesus in John chapter 2 did not commit himself to men because he already knew what was in man. But Allah tests individuals to learn more about them. If this happens, perhaps this will follow. Conversations between Allah and his prophet Muhammad. A lot of perhaps, a lot of maybe, a lot of will learn. This is reflected in the, the prophet of Islam as well. Muhammad himself said, I don't know what God will do with me, though I am his apostle. Woe is me. Am I a poet or am I possessed? That was what he wrestled with at the end of his life. Am I a poet speaking God's word or am I possessed by a devil? Three times he tried to commit suicide by throwing himself off a mountain. Even Muhammad wondered if he was possessed by a devil or was he speaking true. He had no clue. God's prophets know that what they say is true. Because the God that speaks to them by the mouth of the Holy Ghost is omniscient. He doesn't have to test people to know what they'll do. He didn't have to, he didn't have to test Abraham to know if he'd be faithful because he knew Abraham would be faithful and that's why he made an unconditional covenant even before the test. That test was to strengthen Abraham's faith. Our God's omniscient. That means it's not Muslim God. It's not JW God either. The God of the Jehovah's Witnesses doesn't know everything because in the beginning it was only supposed to be 144,000 of His witnesses that would reign here on earth. But when the membership of the JW Church exceeded that, then they had to start changing the numbers and fiddling with it. That God doesn't know everything. Our God's not Mormon God, not Muhammad's God, not J.W. God, because He's omnipotent. And if He's omnipotent, He's by default omniscient. And then finally, by default, He's omnipresent. 
Omnipresent means he's everywhere. His eyes run to and fro throughout the whole earth, knowing and understanding all things about men and everything man does. His eyes run to and fro throughout the whole earth. That means if he's omnipresent, then the God of the Bible, the God we worship, is not America's God. America's God's not omnipresent. Because so many in this country who talk about God think that they can actually live a certain way behind closed doors and God won't know about it. Our politicians that say God bless America speak of a God as if He would bless us and yet be unable to see what they do behind the closed doors of our capital. America's God is not the God of the Bible. It was at a day in, the, in, in, a, in a time long ago, but America's God today that our politicians reference is not omnipresent. Because if he were, then there'd be a fear of God in the eyes of these wicked people. I found an interesting article that was put out the other day about the makeup of the U.S. Congress. And it's fake news. Almost... Every article you read today is fake news. This is fake news. The, the title of it was put out by the Pew Research Center. It says, Faith on the Hill. And it looks about at the religious composition of the 116th Congress. And the point of the article is to say that the makeup of this Congress is 88% Christian. And therefore, the Christians of this country are overrepresented because there's not 88% of the population that's Christian. So Christians are overrepresented in Congress and it's not fair. Let me tell you something. The Bible-believing, born-again Christian in this country has zero representation in the U.S. House of Representatives. Zero. This is fake news. Christians are not overrepresented in our Congress. When is the last time that our Congress has voted to do something that God is pleased with? That is in line with His Word? We sitting in this room have zero representation in our halls of government. And we have one friend today. One friend. And that's our president. But men are fickle. They can be your friend one day and they can be your worst enemy the next. So don't put your trust in Him. We have more representation as Christians from our president than we have from both houses of Congress put together. That's my opinion. One man's opinion. But it's also a cautious opinion because I've known in my own life a man can be your best friend one day and be bragging to everybody about how great it is to work with you and then the next day he's accusing you of all this stuff that you don't even know what he's talking about and he never speaks to you again. That's human nature. So don't put your trust. But this is unbelievable. I look at Christians as a whole and especially Protestants and Catholics are still overrepresented in proportion to their share in the general public. Well, if that's true, I'd like to see the Congress actually do something for us once in a while. And then I look, that, I look at this breakdown. There were 471 people. I mean, I'm sorry, 534 people in Congress. 
471 of them who were polled said they were Christian. That's 88% of, of Congress and only 71% of the United States adults are Christian. Look, if 71% of the people in this country were born again Christians, this country would look very different. There would be a wall already built on the southern border. Homosexual marriage would not be legal. Abortion would not be legal. Our young men wouldn't be dying on foreign fields in unjust wars. And some of these psychopaths wouldn't be in power in Congress. So... 71% of the U.S. population adults is not Christian. Let's just establish that real quick. But these numbers say that 54% of Congress is Protestant. And the largest percentage of Protestant denominations would be surprisingly Baptist. There's 72 members in Congress who are Baptist. 13% of Congress. Well, that's funny. We're Baptists. And this article wants to say that we as Christians are overrepresented in, in Congress. Well, I'm a Baptist, and 15% of U.S. adults claim to be Baptists, but we only have 13.5% representation in Congress. So the Baptist faith is under, underrepresented. So these fools who wrote this article can't even see the inconsistency. But man, look at what... You go down and you look at what they list under Protestant Christian. Adventist and Christian scientists. Those are cults. Those are cults. Then you get down under Christian, you've got, you've got Protestant, Catholic, and Mormon. Mormon is considered Christian. Are you kidding me? Did you know there are ten members of the House of Representatives that are Mormons? And not all of them are Republicans. Some are Republicans, some are Democrats. That ought to tell you how confused these people are. Catholics, 30% of Congress is Catholic. That would have, that would have, if, if our founding fathers could see that, they would roll over in their graves. It's funny when you, you, you go on and you look, kind of, they, they show you the way how the house is made up. Protestant Christians, you have 136 Republicans and 97 Democrats. How is that possible? Now, we look back at Baptists. There are 72 Baptists in Congress, supposedly. Now, I don't know how many of those are Republicans or how many of those are Democrats. If any of those are Democrat, then that number ought to be taken out because those Baptists should have been excommunicated from their churches. How in the world do you call yourself a Baptist and align yourself with an anti-God, bloodthirsty political party? So if any of those 72 are Democrats, they should have been excommunicated from their churches if, if their churches are biblical. But sadly, they haven't been. So we've got to cut that number off, which makes our representation even less. If there are Baptist Democrats, most of them are probably black. Because sadly, a lot of the black Baptist churches have fallen prey to liberation theology and politics. And in the eyes of many in these churches, politics and my rights and my entitlements are more important than the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel in many of these black churches is valued less than it was by their slavery forefathers who were in chains. And that's a shame. And that's a pity. 
And praise God, it's not all black churches. There's some black preachers out here that preach against this madness. There's black preachers that will go on the street and lift up their voice and preach the gospel. But it's sad what's happened to the black church. It's sad what, what has happened to the black population in this country that such a high percentage of black unborn babies are murdered in the womb. And, if, and the black population is foolish to think that this is not designed. The people they vote for hate them. But this is what happens, confusion in a country. It's sad. And yet we're overrepresented in Congress. It's a shame. There was a group that uh, was polled about 18 of this body or 3% of Congress that refused to answer what their religious affiliation were. Surprise, surprise. 18 of these all were Democrats. Surprise, surprise. Don't even have the guts to answer the question. When you look at something like this, it is scary where our country is today. Fortunately, in the House of Representatives, you have 20 Jewish members, and they're not all liberal Democrats. There's a few conservative Republican-thinking Jewish members of Congress. Praise God for that. That's another sad thing. It's sad that the black churches in this country fall for the lies of the devil, and it's sad that the Jewish people in this country fall for those liberal lies as well. Isaiah 6, blindness. In the Senate, there's eight members of the Senate that are Jewish. All of them are radical leftist liberal Democrats. The same people that Jesus talked about in the letter to the church at Smyrna. They say they are Jews, but they're not. They're of the synagogue of Satan. There's a couple of Buddhists and Hindus in the house. I don't know if they're ethnically uh, from Asia, I don't know if the Hindus are ethnically Indian. If they're not, then they forgot to read that you have to be born into Hinduism and Buddhism. So they need to go back and read that part. Um, you've got people that claim to be atheists. Um, just, just, just sad. Really sad. And the God that these religious people reference is not the God we worship because He's not omnis omnipresent. These people live one way and they, 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 they're involved in all sorts of evil behind closed doors. And yet they say, God bless America. And they call God to their side when they want to promote their policies. That's a different God. That's a God who's not omnipresent. But our God is omnipresent. He's an almighty creator. He's not a deistic God that wound up the world like a watch and then left it to run on its own. You know, they want to say that all of our founding fathers were, were deists. A deist believed that God, like a watchmaker, made everything, wound it up, and then he left it alone, and he had nothing, has nothing to do with it anymore, and he went on about his business. Well, that's kind of funny. If Thomas Jefferson was a deist, then why did he say, I fear for my country when I reflect that God is just, and his justice does not sleep forever? A deistic God has no more care for the world. He wound up the watch, and he went on to do something else. If Thomas Jefferson was a deist, why did, then as president did he pray before the country in the name of Jesus Christ our Savior? Lies. Mm -hmm. Deist God is not the God of the Bible. Our God is everywhere. He sees everything. You can run to the highest mountain. You can flee to the lowest hell. You can go to the bottom of the sea and He is there. He knows everything. 
He's everywhere. And his creation is irreducibly complex. And in it, we see his infinite design. I came across an interchange that happened many years ago with Sir Isaac Newton, who's one of the greatest uh, scientific thinkers of the last 500 years. And it kind of reflects the American religion. And many in this country who claim to follow God, who follow another God, not the God of the Bible, kind of illustrates America as a whole. It says, one day as Isaac Newton was sat reading in his study with his mechanism on a large table near him, a friend who saw things differently than he did stepped in. Scientist that he was, he recognized at a glance what was before him. So one of Isaac Newton's friends came in and he saw this scientific mechanism. He realized it and it made him curious. Stepping up to it, he slowly turned the crank and with undisguised admiration watched the heavenly bodies all move in their relative speed in their orbits. Standing off a few feet, he exclaimed, My, what an exquisite thing this is. Who made it? Without looking up from his book, Isaac Newton answered, Nobody. Quickly turning to Newton, his friend said, Evidently, you did not understand my question. I ask you, who made this instrument? Looking up now, Newton solemnly assured him that nobody made it, but that the apparatus had just happened to assume the form it was in. The astonished man replied with some heat or some anger, You must think I'm a fool. Of course somebody made it, and he is a genius, and I'd like to know who he is. Looking up from his book and laying it aside, Newton arose and said, This thing is but a puny imitation of a much grander system, whose laws you know, and here I am not able to convince you that this mere toy before you is without a designer and a maker, yet you profess to believe that the great original form from which the design is taken, with its more massive and complicated orbital motions, has come into being without either designer or maker. Now tell me, by what sort of reasoning can you come to such a conclusion? Nothing new under the sun. But that's America today. We couldn't walk by a a brick building and say that it was without a maker. But we think all of this stuff around us was just came into being and that if there is a God, He never judges A storm, a hurricane, or a fire certainly could never be his judgment. And he just loves, if there is a God, he loves on everybody, but he never judges. Because America's God is not omnipresent. Our God is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Because the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, something He's always done, something that the saints see openly, the conclusion, it all makes sense, it's all worked up to the climax. Therefore, let us be glad and rejoice. Because God omnipotent reigneth, be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him for the marriage of the Lamb is come and His wife has made herself ready. This is the focal point of the Hallelujah Chorus. That great chorus in chapter 5, the focal point 
was the lamb who was worthy to open the book. The lamb who was worthy to claim ownership of the earth that was originally given to Adam but was given over to Satan in the garden. Here the focal point is the marriage of the lamb. The marriage has come. You see, when the lamb returns to claim what is his, the king comes with the queen at his side. It's a king and queen that come. So in verse 7, the first part, two things. The marriage of the lamb has come. That's important. And then the second half, the wife has made herself ready. So at this point, the wife is ready to be married. So I want to use this opportunity to talk a little bit about the Jewish wedding. Who is the bride of the Lamb being referenced here? His wife has made herself ready. There's a marriage, there's a bride. Who is the bride? There's two brides mentioned in Scripture. Turn to Isaiah 54 verse 5. Man, that felt good to thunder. Thunder against my country from this pulpit. That's what this country needs is preachers who will thunder down from the pulpit what this country really is and call men to repentance. That's what this country needs. Praise God for others who undoubtedly are doing the same, hopefully. Isaiah 54, this is written to Israel, For thy maker, verse 5, is thine husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, And thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. You see, our God, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, the God of the Bible is the God of Israel. The God who made an unconditional covenant to Israel, to Abraham, and to Isaac, the promised seed. Not to Ishmael, the son of the bondwoman who was cast out, but to Isaac. That's why... The God of Islam cannot be the God of the Bible. I tell Israeli backpackers all the time, the God of the, the Quran's in the Bible, but he's not the God of the Bible. What do you mean? Well, he's the Nachash in the Ghanidan. He's the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And they're just like, oh, how could you say such a thing? Because it's the truth. So in Isaiah 54, 5, God tells Israel that I, thy maker, am thy husband. So you have Israel, the bride of Jehovah. Israel is the bride of Jehovah. But she is an adulterous wife. We could, read, we could look at Jeremiah 3 or Ezekiel 16. The bride of Israel is an adulterous wife. And God has put her away. Hosea 2 and 3, however tells us that God promises to take her back and restore her as a wife. So Israel, the adulterous wife of Jehovah, has been put away. But as was demonstrated in the life of Hosea, the prophet, with his adulterous wife, Gomer, God's going to take her back and restore her. She's divorced, but will be remarried. There's a second bride in Scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Those that would say the church replaces Israel have a big problem because Israel is an adulterous wife. 
The church is something very different. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2. Paul writes, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And then over in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul gives some exhortation concerning marriage. And then in verse 32, he says, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Marriage is a testimony or should be a picture of Christ, the Messiah, and his relationship with his bride, the church. So you have the church, which is not an adulterous wife, but a chaste virgin, espoused, it says in 2 Corinthians 11, 2, to one husband. Espoused, yet not married. Okay? So the bride of Jehovah is married, has been put away, but will be restored. The, the bride of the Lamb... The bride of Christ is espoused, yet not yet, not yet married. Here in chapter 19, verse 7, it's time for the espoused virgin to be married. This is the New Testament church. It's interesting when you think about the wedding and the marriage symbolism here. Israel is the wife of Jehovah. You go back to Revelation chapter 12, you see the woman, the dragon versus the woman. Woman stands for Israel. And she gets clothed with the sun. She bears a child. And that child is caught up. That's the Messiah. It is from God and his covenant relationship, his covenant marriage to Israel that Messiah came. And Messiah has a covenant relationship with his church, which is comprised of Jew and Gentile. So in a sense, God's marriage to Israel produced Messiah, and the son of that marriage between God and Israel produces the church. That's why uh, Paul says that Jerusalem is the mother of us all. Jerusalem will be restored. Israel will be restored as the wife of Jehovah and have a privileged place in the millennium. But to be the bride of Christ, the chaste virgin, unblemished, is a privileged place for both Jew and Gentile. It should be a coveted place to be. The church has not replaced Israel. Israel is an adulterous wife. The church is a chaste virgin. Israel was married and divorced and will be remarried. The church is espoused, chaste, unblemished, yet to be married. I want to look a little bit at the Jewish wedding. I know we have a baptism today, so I'm going to kind of stop. Uh, but I want to look at the Jewish wedding because the way the Jewish wedding <coughs> was done is interesting because it parallels what we see in the Scriptures. First of all, the wedding imagery is used throughout Scripture. We see it in the Old Testament... And we see it with Jesus when he talks to his disciples and when he tells parables to the people. Lots of parables refer to a wedding. Jesus did a miracle at a wedding, his first miracle. When he talks to his disciples in John 14 about, I go to prepare a place for you. It's all wedding imagery. And so these Jews would have known exactly what he was talking about. It behooves us to look at a Jewish wedding 
so we can see and understand as they saw and were able to understand. The first part of a Jewish wedding is what is called the arrangement. The arrangement. And in an arrangement, the father of the groom makes an arrangement with the father of the bride. And they decide upon a bride price. That's a price that the groom must pay to obtain his bride. So the father of the groom and the father of the bride make an arrangement. And they negotiate a bride price and it's agreed upon. Sometimes this happens in Jewish culture when the bride and groom are just children. And sometimes they don't even meet until the wedding day. It's interesting when you look at some of the things Jesus said. Look at Matthew chapter 22. And we're going to look at this parable of the wedding feast a little more in depth uh, down the road. Chapter 22 verse 2. The kingdom of heaven is likened to a certain king which made a marriage for his son. A king made a marriage for his son. That means the father, the king, arranged it. And then look what Jesus says. In John chapter 6, when you think of the wedding and the marriage, it makes these verses come alive. John chapter 6, 65 and 66, our Lord says, And he said, Therefore I said unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. You see, back in verse 44, Jesus had said, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Those that come to Jesus in that context are his church, the bride. So no man can come to me unless the Father draws him. Why? Because it's the Father of the groom that arranges the marriage, that chooses the bride. And therefore, you're not coming to Christ as his bride unless God arranges that. And God arranges that because salvation is of the Lord. The invitation goes to all, whosoever will. But you can't come to God unless God draws you. Kids, pray that I'll be saved. Well, God has to draw you. So you need to ask God to draw you. You need to listen to him. Just like young Samuel in the bed heard from God and Eli said, go back and listen. And when he speaks, just say, Lord, I'm here. I'm listening. So you be like young Samuel. Say, Lord, I'm listening. God made an arrangement with himself. Why? Because he's the father of both the groom and the bride. Paul refers to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in Romans 15. He's the Father of the groom. And Ephesians chapter 4 verse 6 says, let's see, uh, I'm all messed up in here. Ephesians 4 verse 6, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, But to us there is but one God, the Father. Not Mormon God, not JW God, not Muslims God, not, not uh, America's God. 
One God the Father, of whom are all things, and we in Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by Him. You see, God's the Father of the groom and the bride. So He made an arrangement with Himself. He mediated within Himself what the bride price would be. His mercy made an arrangement with His justice. And it was determined that the bride price would be the blood of his son. Is it strange that God would mediate with himself? He certainly didn't mediate with the devil. He mediated with himself. Hebrews 6 tells us this. Hebrews chapter 6. It's the chapter that all of these people that can't nail down their salvation, that can't nail down their assurance, they like to go to this chapter. They like to go to the book of Hebrews, but they fail to see that this was written to Jews who were claiming to follow Christ as Messiah, just like those Jews who stirred up a bunch of trouble after Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. They were claiming to follow Christ, but yet they were saying you had to keep the law and be circumcised. Yet they were still going to the temple and offering sacrifices, wavering back and forth. Either the sacrifice of Messiah was good enough or it wasn't. Paul said, I'm convinced better things of you all, though, things that accompany salvation. But in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 13, talking about the covenant God made with Abraham, for when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. Then it goes on to say, verse 16, For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of His counsel, confirmed it by an oath. But He didn't swear by something greater. He swore by Himself. That by two immutable things, that is the promise He made to Abraham and the oath He took in Genesis chapter 15, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we has as an anchor of the soul. So here in this chapter that so many people say teaches we can lose our salvation, we're told that the hope in Christ is an anchor of the soul. I'm sorry, my friend, but if it's an anchor for the soul, it can't be lost. Or that imagery makes absolutely no sense. And the God of the Bible is just as fickle and confused as the God of the Quran. It's an anchor of the soul because God swore by him Himself. He mediated with Himself. Galatians 3.20 tells us the same thing. Galatians 3.20 now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. God's justice and God's mercy mediated. When people mediate, there's, it, there's at least usually three parties. The two that are at odds and the mediator. A mediator doesn't mediate for one person, but God is one, and he mediated with himself. His mercy and his justice mediated and determined our salvation. It determined the bride price, the blood of His Son. 
The scriptures are so clear and this isn't preached anymore. What we hear today is a bloodless gospel. Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Christ gave himself. That was the bride price for his church. Gave himself. <clears throat> Acts 20, the elders, there in the Ephesian elders, the same to whom this letter was written are told to flee, feed the flock of God which he has purchased with his own blood. We as elders and leaders need to have patience with our flocks because they've been purchased with the blood of Christ, which is the blood of God. Paul said, purchased God. God has blood and God used it to purchase his church because Jesus is God in human flesh. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's the bride price, his son. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, very powerful. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. We were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. If there's no blood, there's no salvation. The blood makes atonement for the soul. The Jews ought to know this. It's very clear in their Torah. God himself became the sacrifice just as Abraham prophetically spoke there on Mount Moriah with Isaac. God will provide himself the lamb. Messiah's blood purchased two things. It bought back the title deed of the earth. Revelation 5. The first big hallelujah chorus. And it purchased a people. His church. The second hallelujah chorus. Both of these satisfied God. Satisfied the righteousness of God and His wrath against sin and it satisfied the Father of Jesus Christ as concerning His bride. You see, the Father of the groom, the Father of the bride are the same and in God the arrangement was made who His bride would be. Not just Jews. Jews and Gentiles from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It was purposed long ago in the Old Testament. So you have the arrangement. The fathers arrange and a price is decided upon. Our marriage to Christ was arranged in eternity past. The price was decided upon. That's why Ephesians speaks of the saints as being foreordained before the foundation of the world. That is great comfort in the darkest of times. The second part of the marriage is what we call the betrothal or the espousal. After the arrangement is made, the groom would take initiative, leave his father's house, and go to the father of the bride, negotiate some specifics, and actually pay the bride price. <coughs> Once the bride price was paid, a covenant was established. Oftentimes this was symbolized 
by the bride and the groom drinking, a, sharing a cup of wine. And at this point, the marriage became legal. It wasn't consummated, but it was legal. It was espoused. And then following this formal betrothal, there was a period of espousal where the bride is set apart, trained, prepared for her role as a wife, observed for her purity. In Jewish culture, a lot of times the minimum was a year. This allowed a full nine months to pass, which would prove her virginity. Sometimes it was many years. So the, 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 the groom would leave his home, go to the father of the bride, they would negotiate some specifics, and he would pay the bride price. And once the bride price was paid, he would leave gifts. They, they'd share a cup to covenant the marriage. He'd leave gifts, and then he'd, then he'd return to his father's house. We'll talk about that later. And there was a period of betrothal or espousal. The marriage was legal, and, but it was not consummated. We see a similar thing in our culture with engagement. But we don't view engagement as the Jews viewed betrothal. In engagement, we can be engaged and we, we, we give a symbol of a ring which is supposed to be a covenant, but yet engagements are broken all the time. That didn't happen. That wasn't a good thing if it happened. It was tantamount to divorce if it wasn't for good reason, if it wasn't according to what Moses allowed, uncleanness in the wife, sexual impurity there in Deuteronomy. So when Mary and Joseph are introduced to us in the New Testament, they're in that period of espousal where Mary's in her father's home. Joseph has already paid the bride price. They're legally married, but it's not consummated. And he's off preparing a place for her. And then Mary shows up pregnant. And Joseph, he loved her. He didn't want to make a public example, but according to the law... Something was wrong and he was legally able to put her away and he was thinking about these things when the angel came and said, look, <laughs> this is from God. And so then it says Mary took, I mean, Mo, uh, Joseph took her to be his wife. So he just took her into his home, but he didn't consummate the marriage until after Jesus was born. We as the church are in that period of espousal according to Paul. Paul says, I have espoused you to one husband. The marriage is legal. When we give our heart to Christ, we've been bought with a price. We're not our own. The marriage is legal. We're to be preparing ourselves to consummate it in heaven. You have the arrangement, the betrothal, the espousal. I want to talk a little more about it. You have the fetching of the bride. It's done in secret, oftentimes by night. Then you have the marriage ceremony, the consummation, and the wedding supper. And it's really interesting to see how these things fall in line with the scriptures in terms of God's plan and purpose for his church, the bride. I'm going to end there today. I want to talk a little more about the betrothal next time. Um, and uh, then we'll, we'll talk about the fetching of the bride. You, you see, if there is no pre-tribulational rapture of the church, this whole analogy falls apart. The disciples knew exactly what Jesus was talking about in John 14 because they were familiar with the Jewish wedding. And a fetching of the bride by night was a very big part of that. So we'll end there today. And uh, I guess that means we got through chapter 19, verse, in a sense, uh, verse 7. Verse 7. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, God, that you have espoused to yourself 
Jesus, that you espouse to yourself a bride, Lord. We were tainted and blemished and lost in our sins, but we've been purified by the blood of Christ. And you'll present to yourself a bride one day unblemished. Lord, we look forward to the day that when with the saints of God we can rejoice for the marriage of the Lamb has come and we the bride have made ourselves ready. Help us to make ourselves ready now by being prepared, by waiting, by being sober, by growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, by being in the Word, but not, by not aligning ourselves with the vain things of this world but being a light in a dark land. Thank you for your word, Lord. You, Lord God, omnipotent, reign it. You're omnipotent, you're omniscient, you're omnipresent. You're, you're God, the God of Israel, the God of Messiah, the God of the Bible. And we acknowledge you today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.